Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. I'm I'm just very excited for this little mini-series we're doing leading up until Easter, where we're just considering the last days of Christ. I think we could all understand the significance of you walking through if you knew that it was your final days here on planet Earth. If I said, hey, you're you're not going to wake up tomorrow, would that change the direction? Would it change the things that you did today? It probably would, right? It would for sure for me. Um, I imagine the conversations I would be having with my kids, with my family, the kind of things that I wanted to be passed on, what I, what I wanted to be known for as my legacy, or maybe words that I wanted to have put on my tombstone. Like I would start doing some of these things, right? I'd start getting some affairs in order. And in a similar way, Jesus is doing that in his last couple days leading up to the cross. And so last week, what Katie unpacked for us, uh, which I thought she just did a magnificent job, taking us through Jesus' last parable, his last kind of teaching, his last sermon that he officially gave. And, and what he taught there, really simply, through several different parables, I loved how she broke this down for us, that, that really, at the end of the day, there are going to be two kinds of people when Jesus returns. And they're going to two different places. There's no third middle option. There's no kind of middle of the road way that you can go about it. You're not a neutral third party. If you're a neutral third party, then you're going to the place that you don't want to go. And at some point in each of those parables, in all of our stories, when Jesus returns, people are going to realize that it's too late. But I loved the encouragement towards the end of the service that it's not too late for you and I sitting in this room. Jesus has not returned. The loved ones that we have in our life that don't know him, it is not too late for them. We should not give up hope. We should not quit pressing into the things that Jesus has for them. We shouldn't stop praying. We shouldn't stop having conversations. And I want to just pastorally, maybe just for a moment before we get back into the sermon, I want to ask you, did last week look any different for you after that sermon? I just, I think it's got to just get down deep into our guts that Jesus is coming and he's going to come like a thief in the night. And people who are walking with him and know him and people who don't know him are both going to be surprised at the day that he comes. And we have to live with this sort of urgency. We have to live with this sort of focus and this intentionality to the way that we live our life. It's not too late to be having conversations with the people that don't know Jesus. It's not too late for you to get right with Jesus, right? It's not too late for you to make a decision today to go, Jesus, I wanna follow you. I wanna put my certain future into your hands. I'm tired of handling it on my own. And so I just wanna echo and remind us of last week that we shouldn't also just let church be this thing that just comes by seven days at a time and then we just kind of go about not changing much from our life. May it not be that way, right? We should have this sort of focus to our faith. This week, what we're talking about is Jesus's last supper, the last supper. It's kind of a big deal, famous meal in scripture, right? How many of you all, where would you be going if I told you, again, you're not waking up tomorrow morning. What are you having for dinner tonight? Can I just, can we honestly just poll people? Praise God for some steak. How many of y'all, you're eating some cow somewhere? Doesn't really matter how it's coming out. You're doing some cow, brisket, steak, whatever. Where else are we going? Come on. Sinzetti's. We will pray for you, okay? There's, there are better meals to be had on the last day. I'm just kidding, Scott. I love you, bro. <laughs> Dude, Sinzetti's is the all-you-can-eat place though, right? Yeah, like, okay. So I, I see where you're going there. You can just throw down for like hours at a time, right? Not going to have to worry about any of this because I'm going to Jesus tomorrow. You know what I mean? <laughs> Anyone else? I heard one more. I couldn't. Chop All right. House. Yeah, Chop House. I'm going with you, Brenda. That'd be, awesome. That'd be amazing. Go to Chop House. Let you pick up the tab, right? That'd be amazing. That'd be so fun. <laughs> Listen, a last meal, when you think about it, 
Jesus is, is coming into the last days of his life. He, he understands that he's coming into Jerusalem for the very last time. He'd made that journey before. He'd made that pilgrimage before. He'd even eaten the Passover before, but this time it was different. I think as we read here, you can open your Bibles if you want. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26, and that's where we'll kind of hang out for just a moment. But the significance of this moment, I think it gets lost on us today as we're reading through this passage so quickly, that this is, this is such a critical meal for the Jewish people, such a critical meal for, for all of the Hebrew people. Jesus would have had this meal before with his disciples. He would have had it probably three other times, maybe every year for his life, but three years in his ministry when he's walking with these friends. But this is the last time he eats the Passover with them. The Passover is so culturally significant that I don't really think there's a comparable meal for us today. I, you know, we're certainly used to traditional meals. At Thanksgiving, I can bet that most of y'all on your table are going to have a, a turkey, right? Maybe at Christmas, you're going to have a roast. Like, I mean, there are different things that we can predict. I really think the closest that it would feel like for us as American people to understand what's happening culturally for the Hebrew people is something like the 4th of July. Okay, so 4th of July, I don't know what it looks like at your house. We usually have a good time with friends and we'll be playing cornhole or backyard games, whatever, hanging out. And then we'll make our way over to the park and we will watch the bombs burst in midair, right? The rocket's red glare will be evident in the sky and we'll all sit there and we'll cheer, be like, freedom, liberty, yeah, you know, just get your American spirit all charged up for a minute, right? Am I alone? I'm alone in that, okay. <laughs> whatever, good citizens of the United States of America in this room today, um, but we have, like, I, I think even as we watch that, we feel a sense of, like, patriotism, or at least we're, like, we're thankful for our country. We reflect possibly on the men and women who laid down their lives to give us the liberties and the freedoms that we have today. We recognize that this country, though she is not perfect, is, is not like every other country in the world. And we have a moment where we're sort of, our identity gets somewhat tied to and rooted in who we are as American people, Right? Listen, I know your, your allegiance belongs to Christ. We are citizens of a different place. I, I know all that, but I'm talking like for that day, you're aware of your American culture, right? And yet like that, it, it pales in comparison, comparing that to what Hebrews would have been experiencing at Passover because the Passover was not just a traditional meal and it wasn't just a, a cultural celebration. It was, it was a core identity marker for the people of God. Like we just sang that song, Egypt, where you stepped into my Egypt, right? You took me by the hand. You marched me out in freedom into the promised land. This is something that they would have been not just walking through mentally, but there were components around the meal where they're eating lamb. They're eating lamb, remembering that their ancestors, the people who had been before them, were rescued by only the bloodshed of the innocent lamb and sprinkled on the lentils, on the doorframe of their houses. And they would know that God rescued them so swiftly, not just that it happened suddenly, but that there wasn't even time to raise, let the yeast permeate the dough of their bread. And that's why they would have, they would have unleavened bread. The unleavened bread festival and feast would go with Passover. And they'd be eating bitter herbs to be reminded of the, the bitterness of sin and the bitterness that comes with walking away from God and his statutes. And they would have not just been mentally remembering, but the dad, the patriarch of the family would have been leading them through different liturgies or different scripture readings. They'd have been recounting and retelling the story of what happened to their people, us sitting at this table today. We're remembering that God made a way where there was no way. Where we once were in bondage, we are now in freedom. And that is all thanks to, to Yahweh, the Lord, God. They would have been remembering this at Passover. It was so, such a big deal, such a big deal. So much so that I really don't think in our, in our American minds, like we don't understand that even the Star Spangled Banner 
right? And the rocket's red glare, the bomb's bursting in air, right? That comes from, that comes from a poem written from the War of 1812, where there was a battle fought in the Baltimore Harbor, where the U.S. prevailed overnight against this, uh, this attack from the, the Royal Navy. And we, like, we, don't, we don't know that. We just think, oh, it's awesome. Things are exploding in the middle of the sky. This is sweet, America. And I'm all for that. Like, listen, I'm, I am that guy, okay? I'm not trying to cast judgment on anybody. That is me on the 4th of July. I'm just saying, there's a richness to the heritage and the history that we lose. And you wouldn't have lost it if you were a Hebrew. You would have been reminded every single year about the significance of the Passover lamb about the significance of the blood shed by another for the sacrifice being made on our behalf so that we could be free. So Jesus, that's the space he steps into with his disciples. And as we read here now, Matthew 26, starting in verse 17, he says, now on the day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus said to them, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, I don't know how much you guys are rolling in the gift of hospitality when you have people over at your house, but how many of you know you sit down with your 12 closest homies over at your house for dinner and you just start with some sort of bombshell news like that? Uh, it's like, listen, for as like beautiful as the painting is and as like sweetly as we want to remember the Passover and the Last Supper, like there was some awkward tension at the table. Can we just all acknowledge that? Jesus is like, hey, one of you betraying me. Right, close, 12 close friends, we've walked together, we've done life together for the last few years, but one of you is betraying me. And then the, the, the awkwardness only moves on from there. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? And Jesus answered him, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. And I just wonder, like, they're all probably like, oh my gosh, did I, put, did I put my hand in the dish? Like, did I do that too? Was I with him? Okay, how did I clean myself up when I got in here? And they're trying to like go through their mind, like who is it that's gonna betray him? But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Just, just imagine going around the table. Thomas is like, is it me? Jesus is like, no, dude, you're good. Peter's like, me? It's gotta be me. I make all the mistakes, right? He's like, Jesus is like, no, you do, but it's all good, right? Like, just keep on going down the line. And then Judas, how awkward is this moment, right? Judas says, is it I, teacher? Is it I, rabbi? And he says to him, you have said so. The heartbreak in that moment the betrayal that probably all the disciples felt, not just Jesus, but the, but the painful things that Judas had probably already put into place were too late to undo at that moment. The betrayal, the coercion with the Roman guards is all probably happening in live time. And there's things that are happening now that, that Judas can't undo and now his, his fate somewhat is sealed. And it's terrible and it's heartbreaking. And we read on here. After that, just, I mean, if you can, I'm sure you've all had some awkward moments at your family dinner table, but I'm, I'm telling you, none of them have been that awkward. Can we agree? Like that is weird, weird. So it says, now as they were eating, meal carries on a little bit later. They let, the, they let the moment air out a little bit. So Jesus takes a loaf of bread. In my mind, it's artisan, sourdough. It's beautiful. It's probably got some design on the top of it. It's not no nasty, like sliced white bread. You know what I mean? It's like this, it's a loaf of bread. You know what I'm saying? He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it. He gives it to the disciples and he says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And we'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, 
I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so in this moment, we don't see it right here, but we read about it later on in scripture, in Acts and in Corinthians, Paul's explaining what's happening in this moment. This is such an incredible moment for the people of God. This is the moment right here where the entire sacrificial system, the entire cleansing rituals that the people of God were used to going through uh, month after month, year after year, all of their economy rotated around this. All of their life, their time was all oriented around how they were gonna get the right sacrifice when to the temple. And Jesus says, today the Old Testament is fulfilled and the New Testament is inaugurated. It begins. Now what we see this last supper as is something that we call communion or the Eucharist, or the Lord's table. Depending on your stream, how you grew up, it's called many different things. But we see in Acts chapter two, that the the early believers of Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to communion, and to the prayers. So they were committed to this meal. There was this frequency in how they did it. Paul, we'll read some of these later, but Paul is rebuking the Corinthian church for the flippancy in which they're receiving this meal. Because what Jesus has anchored for us in this time is he's saying, do this in remembrance of me, And you're going to do this until I return. So that puts us like, that is what we're doing now. When we're receiving the communion, we're we're sitting in, we're considering all that the last supper means for us. And that's that's the teaching for today. I, I want to just simply over these next few minutes, walk us through what's happening physically in communion. I want to talk about what's happening mentally or what should be happening mentally. And then I want to show us the most important thing. And that's the aspect that's happening spiritually underneath communion as we receive the elements. And so the first thing, what's happening physically, depending on your stream and how you grew up, um, there are all kinds of beliefs that go around communion. If you have, if you grew up with heavy Catholic roots, then you believe in what's called transubstantiation, which I'm not going to make anyone spell that because it's probably spelled wrong on my iPad right now. But what that means is you actually believe that as you receive, as the priest prays over and blesses the sacraments, as he prays and blesses uh, the juice or the wine and the bread, What's actually happening is that is becoming the literal body and blood of Christ. And that's not what we believe. I'll talk more about why in just a second. But this is a two-course meal, right? It's a pretty simple meal. No fondue, style, like, you know, melting pot style meal where you're getting like the salad up front and then the cheese fondue and then the meat and then the dessert afterwards. This is two-course meal. And I remember uh, being like a young Christian growing up in this church and, uh, you know, it'd be like, hey, it's time to come to the table of the Lord now. We're going to receive this meal. We're going to receive this time of communion. And I'd be like, meal? Like a thimble full of juice and like a little piece of bread. Like, what are we I'm talking about? Some meal here, you know what I mean? That's not even like a warm-up to a meal. Am I, you're, am I right? No, that was even back in the days when we used to actually break French loaf. And, you know, an elder would give you a piece. And depending on what elder line you went in, you got, you got a piece piece sometimes, you know? <laughs> Those are good old days, right? A, yeah, that was awesome. But it's a two-course meal. It's eating. Physically, what's happening is we are eating. We're eating bread and we're drinking juice or wine. Honestly, there's not really, there's not any sense in getting lost in the weeds of whether it should be juice or whether it should be wine because all that scripture says is fruit of the vine. I do think though, you know, during COVID, um, I remember sitting there just, you know, we're all, we're all stuck at home. Just was watching all sorts of different churches live stream. Just uh, every, every pastor in the world, I don't care what they say about what their plan was and how they had it figured out. None of us had it figured out. You know what I mean? We're all just trying to watch each other to figure out what other people were doing. We're trying to pray desperately, say, Holy Spirit, would you show me something to do? I remember watching all these different live streams and and man, some churches were real casual with how they tried to administer communion to their church. 
Like, hey, just go grab some Gatorade or just grab a bagel or, you know, whatever. If you've got some Coke nearby. And I do, listen, I think, there's, I think there's some grace in how we can receive communion. Does it have to be this kind of bread, that kind of bread, this kind of juice, that kind of juice, wine, not wine? There's some grace there, but there in no way is room for flippancy at the Lord's table. We shouldn't just be so casual with it. This is a, this is a sacrament. It is, in, in by that, we mean it is a sacred time. It's not just meant for anybody. And so we should approach this, this moment with some reverence physically. We don't believe that it's the actual body and blood of Jesus, just in the same way that when we say that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, and it is up to us to abide in him. We don't believe that Jesus is actually an oak tree or a peach tree, right? We also don't say when Jesus says, I am the door or the gate, we don't believe that he's becoming a slab of oak or wrought iron, Right? There is a figurative language that's happening here. And I'll show you why when we get to 1 Corinthians that I don't think it actually makes sense for this to be the literal body and blood of Jesus. But instead, physically, what we're doing is we eat. It's, it's more than just we're, we're like ascribing to some truth in our brain. We're physically eating something. God is involved in our senses. And so as we taste juice and as we chew bread, it's meant to take our mind somewhere. And so physically, it's predominantly about eating bread, drinking juice. Mentally, it's about engaging with the truth of what God has already said. The danger in communion is that it is really easy to slip into some kind of rote activity where it's just like, oh, it's just the week for communion this week. I think churches, him and ha, all the time, we argue about how, what's the right frequency to receive communion. I would say, I don't, I don't think there is like a scriptural right and wrong way to take communion. It's the, the principle that seems to be underlining it all is don't take it so often that you treat it cheaply, but don't, but don't take it so little that you don't get the value of the moment. The frequency should only serve the significance of what we're doing, right? And so like we've landed on every other week for now. I, I don't know. We're open to whatever we feel like we need. We're not gonna receive it on Easter even though that's two weeks from now. And this is because what we see for communion is because it shouldn't be taken casually, it also shouldn't be taken by people who don't profess faith in Christ. We try to give that warning every single week. And part of that warning, it honestly, it comes out of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. We can turn there now. If you have your Bible, you can flip over or it's gonna be on the screen. Paul, in this section, he is, he's just come off chapter 10 explaining this warning about eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. And then he kind of shifts into talking about the Lord's Supper and communion and all that Jesus has for it. And he's, he's rebuking the Corinthian church because they're approaching it with wrong motives. Some, some of the more uh, wealthy people in the church or people who had more means are, are coming and they're using this time. They're bringing everything in and they're eating and they're getting full and they're, they're drinking wine and they're getting drunk. And Paul's like, this is off. It should never be this way. Some people who didn't have means are going without any of it. He's like, that's not what the table's meant for. He's like, eat at home. That's his main message in this whole passage of scripture. Eat, drink at home. But when you come into the gathering, when you're gathered with God's people, receiving, this ele receiving these elements, do so with Christ in mind and not your bellies, right? So he says this, he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So what's also happening during communion is not just this private kind of reclusive time where it's just like me, myself, and Jesus getting to hang out for a little bit. But what we have to understand about communion is that by its very nature, it is proclamation of what God has done. And so we shouldn't be embarrassed about it. We shouldn't be timid about it. Does it look weird to believers? Yeah, it absolutely does. Communion actually in the early roots of the church in Roman, in Roman history, like it got this reputation amongst early Christians, early followers of the way as they were called, that they were all cannibals. 
They'd go into their dark rooms and they'd light their candles and they'd eat, they'd eat flesh and drink blood. And it's because this was so confused by the outside world. Yeah, it looks a little strange, but we are mentally, during this time, we are engaging with the Spirit of God, choosing to remind our souls of what Jesus has done for us personally. And Paul keeps going on to say, he says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So there is a way to receive communion where you're receiving it in an unworthy way. I think our first default reaction is like, oh, well, if I'm, if I'm caught in some sort of sin or if I'm not living a perfect life, then I'm not worthy to receive communion. And I don't think that's what this could possibly mean. The, the reason for communion is to be reminded of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, that you're in desperate need of his perfection and his grace to keep you going along your salvation. So it can't mean that it's only for perfect people, but what it instead means is that it cannot be done casually and it cannot be done without Christ in mind. And so that's why we would say it's just, it's not for you yet if you're not a believer, but our hope and prayer every single time is that someday you would participate in this moment with us. And I love you enough just to say that to you because what the Bible's saying, if we're going to read it for what it is, is that there should be some concern as we approach the table. He goes on to say, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So mentally, what we're doing when we're engaging with communion is we're stirring up our soul by way of reminder to remember the things that Christ has done for us, to keep proclaiming this until he returns again. And so like you should not just slip into neutral in your mind while we're receiving communion. Honestly, that is why a lot of times if I can, and if time allows for it, I'm not trying to lead us in a prayer time where we all receive communion together. Because I think the danger in that is you think communion is more about me praying than you praying. And I want to steer clear of that. It is your time that you get to engage with the Lord with your mind. We need to be reminded, we talk about this often when it comes to worship, that what we say and what we declare and what we sing often precedes our belief. So we'll sing worship songs, we'll declare God's truth, we'll stand on the promises of God before we actually believe in ourselves. So when we're weary, we're already singing songs about him being our strength. When we are tired, when we're feeling broken, we're singing songs about how he's made us whole and how he's forgiven us. And the same goes with communion. What we're doing is we're entering into this time mentally going, God, I need your grace. God, I need to have a deeper understanding of your perfection. And, and we see this all over in the Psalms. Psalm 42, 5, not in regards specifically to communion, but in the way that we can use the truth of God and we can use our words and our minds and our thoughts to engage our souls to do something. You can steer your soul into worship. You can steer your soul into thanksgiving. You can steer your soul into gratitude. And so it says this, Psalm 42, verse five, David writes, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. My, the salvation of my face is how that scripture actually reads, which I just, I think that's awesome. You know, I don't know. I was gonna make an ugly person joke there, but it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like the right moment. <laughs> Psalm 103, David goes on to say, look at this one. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my, o my soul. Forget not all your benefits, God, who forgives all iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who re redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with the steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
Another psalmist writes in Psalm 116, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Look, what this means is like when I'm having moments when I'm facing anxiety or fear and uncertainty, you have, listen to me, you have the choice. You can continue to stew on those uncertainties. You can continue to stew on that fear, agree with that fear, or you can remind your soul to return to its rest. God, God has dealt bountifully with me. God has saved me. I've been adopted into his family. I'm loved by him. I've been forgiven of all my sin. I should not battle shame anymore. Like God has called me. He has chosen me. He has set my feet on the solid rock. Return to rest, oh my soul. Look at this, how the psalmist, I mean, you just keep reading the Psalms and time and time again, what you're gonna see is the psalmist or David speaking to their soul, reminding them of the good things God has done to steer them into the direction that God has for their life. This is what we can do in communion. Mentally, we can go, God, I'm remembering that you've paid for this already. I don't have to hang on to this sin anymore. This, I've been forgiven of this. This doesn't have power on me anymore. I'm not gonna walk in it today. And you meet the grace and mercy of Jesus and that's what keeps sustaining you to go forward. Mentally, that's where we go. So physically, we're eating, we're eating bread and we're drinking juice. Mentally, it's primarily about remembering what Jesus has done. But both of those are footnotes compared to what Jesus is doing spiritually during communion. I'll even say it so strong as to say it like this. An unbeliever can participate in communion up until that point. You think about it. They can, they can physically eat bread and drink juice. An unbeliever can mentally recite facts or remember things and, uh, and understand historically what Jesus has done. But what distinguishes us from non-believers would be what we're engaging with or what's happening spiritually during this time. What's happening spiritually during this time is significant. And I want to show it to you in 1 Corinthians now chapter 10. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you back up one chapter, hone in on the word participation as I read this to you. Paul, again, he's talking about food sacrifice to idols, but he interjects this, this note about communion. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So although like physically, we don't believe this is the literal body of Christ, the literal blood of Christ, there is something that we're participating in that's deeper than just eating, eating bread and drinking juice. We're participating somehow. How is it? Well, he goes on to say, because there is only one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. Look at this. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? So we, we would never say that like, that they're, the Israelites, as they're coming, as they're offering their spotless lamb before the priest, and, and they're laying their hand on it to represent the transfer of sin over to that lamb, and the lamb's being killed, the blood is being sprinkled on the doorpost. We wouldn't say for a second, or on the, on the altar, we wouldn't say that Israel is like somehow absorbing part of the altar physically. But what we would say is spiritually, they're receiving by faith the appropriation of whatever just happened there, the transfer of sin, the payment of sin. They're now clinging to it in faith that they have been made holy again. That's how, that's how Israel is interacting with God all the time, is they're having to, in faith, lay hold of, take hold of the fact that the priest has just paid for whatever sin by the blood of this beast that was in front of them. And that is their participation in the altar. In the same way, when we receive communion, when we take the bread, we're participating in the forgiveness of our sins. 
When we receive the, the drink, when we receive the juice, we're receiving the fact, we're participating in the fact that it's Jesus's grace now that we live under and it's his grace that sustains us going forward. So communion then doesn't become this time for the spiritually elite to step in and to receive this amazing thing because they're already so good and that's, this is now their reward and they get to receive this remembrance of what Jesus has done. But rather it's for the spiritually hungry who go, God, I'm, I'm exhausted. I, I have this, I, I, was, I was thinking this as we were receiving communion during first service. I, I, I just wonder if there are people who res, they hesitate to receive communion because they, they're caught in sin and they know it. But I would say if, if sin is being highlighted to you in the moments of communion, it's the grace and kindness of God calling you to repent, inviting you to participate in the body of Christ because he's trying to communicate to you that you're forgiven. That you receive, you, you take, it's like you're coming to communion and you're trying with your best little spiritual arms that you can possibly extend out there. You're trying to take hold of everything that Jesus has already purchased for you. That you're more than a conqueror in Christ. That you've been fully forgiven of your sin. That you don't have to live with the shame and the burden of all the mistakes you made in your past anymore. That he's adopted you as your loving father. Like, do you, do you have just a hold of that identity in your life? I don't always. I, I, I forget sometimes that Jesus and God aren't just, they're, they're not just holy. They're not just this just judge sitting on their throne, reigning over all the universe. He is those things. But he's also my father. The pinnacle of like the gospel is not just the forgiveness of sins. It's adoption into God's family. That he loves me as his son. And when I come to communion, I'm going, God, I need to, I need to take hold of the love that you have for me right now. I, I've been acting like it's my job to clean up this mess that I put myself in. But God, I'm sitting here. I need to just be a recipient of the fact that you've already paid for it. That's not, that's not cheap grace for a second because the more that we can dwell on that, the more we'll be sustained by grace to keep living in righteousness rather than trying to live in righteousness with your own rugged approach to moralism. And so communion becomes a place for the spiritually hungry to come and be nourished. My prayer every time that we engage with communion is that you'll take hold of one of the promises that God has already purchased for you, that you'll really get it, that you won't just mentally ascribe to it, you wouldn't just physically participate in what we're doing. But spiritually, there'd be something that breaks in your soul to say, no, I am loved. I am loved. I am forgiven of that. That haunts me to this day. and I'm not going to walk with it anymore. Like, I can have joy that's unshakable regardless of the circumstances that are in my life right now. Because I've been, I've been forgiven. I've been set free. I can have hope in, in a world someday. Listen to me. I, like, I'm a little charged up today. I did a funeral on Friday. Like life is short. Moments are fleeting. Seasons come to an end quicker than any of us want them to. Your life could change right now with a phone call. And when I come to communion, what I'm reminded of is the fact that Jesus has never given up on me. Not even once. He's never given up on the people that I'm praying for either. There are promises. Look at this. Second Corinthians, Paul writes it this way. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All of the promises of God. Hope forever. Yep. Joy that's unshakable, that's not based on circumstance. It's not just happiness that's cheap. It's joy deep down in your soul. Like you talk about love, adoption, forgiveness, reconciliation to God. All of these promises that Jesus made to you, they're available on the table. And so when we come, we're, we're asking that we would actually like spiritually take claim to the things that God has already purchased for us. 
And so, I, listen, I know how this sermon goes. Everyone's like, yeah, 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 just like shut up and let us take communion now, right? Because you're like, it's that, we're that church, which is like, just get me there. I don't need you to talk anymore. Just let me have some time in communion. I'm glad that's how you feel. That's how I feel too. I just want this time to linger just a minute. We have six, seven, eight minutes before service is out. And so I want this time of communion to kind of feel like this. Okay, I've, I've prayed through all my stuff. I've examined my heart. I've decided if this moment is, is right, if, if I have everything right in my heart and I'm coming to the Lord, I'm receiving his, I'm receiving his grace, I'm receiving his mercy. I'm praying for that he, would, that he would continue to do things in my life. And then the moment's gonna just keep going, right? And that's where we all, if we could be honest in church, like that's when we start to get a little uncomfortable. And it's like, why is this still going on? I've kind of run out of things to pray. And that's the moment where I'd invite you to press in all the more. Say, God, where in my identity am I not operating in one of your promises? Highlight that for me. Help me leave it behind. Help me take hold of what you have for me, Jesus. So hopefully you grabbed communion on the way in. If you didn't, just throw your hand up in the air and we'll have someone from our team will grab some for you. But I'd love to pray. And I'd love to give you some time just to spend a moment, a moment. I know, you're, I know our weeks are busy. Kids are crazy. Life is flying by. Like, let's just pause and exhale and sit back in the spirit of the Lord to go, God, what do you have for me today? So Jesus, won't you come? Meet us in this place. Communion is not just some activity where we're remembering what you did in the past. It's about a real present encounter with the living God. So Jesus, won't you come? Holy Spirit, come. Help us to see him more clearly. Help us to take claim of the promises that you have for us, Jesus. We love you and we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If we could, if we could just bow our heads, close our eyes, put our hands out in front of us, just like Mac had us start the service. It's how we want to end it. Eager to receive, full of surrender. Holy Spirit, would you come? God, I pray that we would operate in the identity that you've given to us. God, help us as a people to take hold of the promises that you have for our life, that we can be free from sin, that we can have a hope, that we can have peace, we can have joy, we can walk in your love. God, I pray that the things that you've spoken to us in this time, the quiet whispers in people's mind, the truth that we read out of your word, God, would it, would it sink deep into our souls this morning? Help us to walk with you in a way leading up to these moments before Easter Sunday where we get to just celebrate and go nuts and rejoice about your resurrection. God, would you help us to walk thoughtfully through your last days of life? And we thank you for your last meal and the first time that communion was ever established, God, and this participation that we get to have now and going forward as the people of God. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful for you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.